Good evening. I'm Martha Raddatz from ABC News. And I'm Anderson Cooper from CNN. We want to welcome you to Washington University in St. Louis for the second presidential debate between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, sponsored by the Commission on Presidential Debates. All right. No more horsing off. It's time for debate. Debate week. Debate week is next week. Twitch.tv slash Justin R. Young. If you watch the conventions with us, this is the place to do it. And we're going to get started in the best way we know how. On Monday, 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific, we're going to watch Donald Trump versus Hillary Clinton. That is the second debate in their three debate series, the Ken Bone debate. And then the next day, Tuesday, September 30th, it's time. Biden versus Trump. The first debate of the 2020 season. Watch along with us, twitch.tv slash Justin R. Young. The following is brought to you by Andy Beach, Nick Wood, Paul Boyer, Michael Bolick, and Will Harris. Welcome, everybody, to the Politics, Politics, Politics program for September 25th, 2020. My name is Justin Robert Young. We are 39 days until Election Day. And we are on the precipice of two major decisions. Well, events, really. One decision, one event. Uh, The first is the selection of who the Trump administration will put forward as a Supreme Court justice. And the second is debate week. We will talk a lot about the selection and the process of how we got to where we got to with our modern Senate selection in our interview a little bit later, where we talk a lot about the filibuster. Ooh, political history nerds. We're talking about the 1700s. We're talking about the 60s. We're talking about today. It's good stuff. It's good stuff. It is also debate week. So we're going to talk a little bit about the expectations, what I believe the expectations are going into this and what history tells us about this moment in the debate cycle. We're also going to get to a ton of your emails. We have an extended email uh, because it's been busy. It's been busy. You guys have sent some good ones lately, and we will talk all about them. But first... Make sure our people have the skills they need to succeed and the best schools in the world. We're far away from that now. Mitt Romney came out with his A game and he came out strong in the beginning in his opening statement, which may have swayed undecided voters. Get us to a balanced budget. Mitt Romney did better than Barack Obama. Champion small business. Now, in our own CBS poll, the percentage of people who said Romney cares about their needs and problems spiked 33 points after the debate. It was the high point of Mitt Romney's presidential candidacy. 
and a sign that incumbents should not take debates lightly. You know, I went back to read uh, about the reaction, the, 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 the contemporary reaction to this debate. And, and I was surprised. Like, this used to be explosively hyperbolic, right? In, in a bygone era, this was when the political press went crazy. And the Obama people were so annoyed by it. They were so annoyed that that there was, oh, this is the narrative. The narrative is that it's the comeback kid versus the stagio president. But they knew, they knew that Barack Obama sucked. And Obama did suck. Indeed, it's what put so much pressure on Joe Biden, who then debated Paul Ryan in the next week in the VP debate. And it was Biden's performance that was looked at as getting the campaign back on track. Now, we reviewed that in our debate prep last week. This week on Monday, as you heard at the beginning of the podcast, we're going to do Trump-Clinton. But let's focus on Biden-Trump, which happens next Tuesday, September the 30th. Donald Trump is historically in a position where he might get blown out. That might sound counterintuitive. Joe Biden's speaking skills have not exactly been his strong suit in this campaign. He is effectively writing and drafting on how negatively people think about Donald Trump. Now, Donald Trump's mouth hasn't exactly done him a ton of favors outside of uh, his base and his rallies, but he's a little bit more seasoned than Joe Biden is. Famously, campaigns kind of keep their debate prep secret. They will only really tell you pieces of information that suggest they are doing fine. Although the Trump administration, or campaign rather, has kind of done the opposite in this particular case. <laughs> the campaign spokesman has sort of let it on that uh, maybe he hasn't done any debate prep. Maybe he's too busy for debate prep. He's too busy running the country. That's his debate prep. And I don't know if that's true. Donald Trump is a showman. And showmen know that practice, practice, practice makes a final product. But either way, Joe Biden's expectations are subterranean. I've called them in the past 10 miles south of Fraggle Rock. And I don't think that's changed. Take a look at the praise Joe Biden had for his Democratic National Convention speech. It was, oh my God, look, everybody said that he was going to be bad. And look, he was great. And he was. I thought it was good. It's not a debate. Joe Biden has said over and over and over again, even during the, the primary campaign, when he was sucking, he said, I'm going to mop the floor. With Donald Trump. Oh, 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 I'm excited. Now, styles make fights. And that's no different in this matchup. During that Romney debate, he wound up scoring points because he came off as more empathetic and even more charismatic than a president for whom had made his entire brand on being empathetic and charismatic. He was able to connect to the average person and seem like somebody that had different ideas. 
That all disappeared in a binder full of women later on. But when he went after Obama directly, he was more prepared, he was crisper, and he highlighted a weakness. People looked at Mitt Romney as big, scary Mr. Burns. And now he was the nice boss that advanced you your Christmas bonus in July because he knew that you were underwater on your mortgage. Obama, on the other hand, looked like a technocrat, somebody that didn't really care about the small people. So what are the styles here? Donald Trump is the biggest bruiser in debate history that I've ever seen. I think we have to go back to before debates were what they are now to really even find a comparison. You'd have to probably go into like governor debates or or state debates, something like that. Donald Trump doesn't care. He is going to throw haymakers and treat this like it's a Fox News appearance. The advantage for Biden is he knows it. The other advantage for Biden is if anybody has been on this stage before, and has acted a damn fool, it's Joe Biden. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean that in the way that he did against Paul Ryan after this Mitt Romney debate. Indeed, he was grinning and laughing and waving his hands and going between uh, talking to Paul Ryan versus talking to the moderator. It's halfway through that debate. And you can watch us watch it on, on twitch.tv slash Justin R. Young. It's halfway through that debate that Paul Ryan even realizes he's getting trampled. He is trying to be Mr. Bipartisan. He's trying to be Mr. Nice Guy. And Joe Biden slaughters him. So, Joe's not going to take any guff or malarkey. He is going to come back at Donald Trump. Here is my recipe for how Joe Biden wins the first debate. Make Trump play the hits. And I mean the hits that have gotten Joe Biden to this point so far. Every time that Joe Biden can maneuver Donald Trump into repeating something that he has been clowned for in the past, it is a win for him. That means I think that uh, the white supremacist protesters are very fine people on both sides. That means I don't take any responsibility for the COVID response. That means I won't commit to a peaceful transition of power. The more that Joe Biden is able to do that, whether or not you agree with those sound bites or points even being fair, it reminds the audience of what they don't like about Donald Trump. He is loud and annoying. And if you vote for Trump, you are voting for four more very loud, very annoying years. Joe Biden is going to win this debate, if he does, by being a quieter, steadier version. Now, that doesn't mean he can get rolled over. He's got to push back. The narrative that I believe has worked for Joe Biden the best is bullied versus bully. So he's got to have a backbone. He's got to stand up. But the more he can get that out of Donald Trump's mouth, have Donald Trump step in these bear traps again, 
the more that can be a talking point in this campaign going forward. And Donald Trump is denied what he wants the most. And that is a rebrand of this race where both men are side by side. One is frustrating, but, you know, we survived. And the other is a feeble man whose brain is being eaten by worms. Which brings me to the biggest thing that Joe Biden needs to avoid, his temper. Joe Biden makes mistakes when he gets angry. The worst things he has said on this campaign trail dating back to the primary is when he's frustrated. The more Joe Biden is PO'd, the worse he will do. Which brings me to Donald Trump's keys to the fight. Get Joe Biden pissed off. You want Joe Biden annoyed. You want Joe Biden defending things that he doesn't even realize he's defending. You want to get Joe Biden on. Why do you think that uh, anybody who's black that votes for me isn't black? You want to tie everything you can to Joe Biden because the more he's got to move with, the less mobility he has. And I believe he is disaster prone in those moments. That might mean him punching a little bit below the belt. Hunter, and even though this uh, new report doesn't really show a lot of new material on Hunter and the Ukraine, the fact that it does show that he bought hookers or alleges that he bought hookers, this is the exact kind of stuff that he wants. He wants to throw that, hey, your son uh, possibly contributed to sex trafficking in Eastern Europe. What do you got to say about that? Joe Biden has no good response and he will almost certainly say something embarrassing. Like that, that is, that's exactly where Trump wants. Number two, Donald Trump wants to demonstrate rhetorically that he's faster than Joe Biden. Joe Biden will try to keep this at a very measured tone. The more that Donald Trump, and he loves doing this, can hit with that witty rejoinder at the end, that not a puppet, that because you'd be in jail, that kind of stuff, the more it's going to look mentally like Trump is faster. Again, the knockout blow for Trump with debate one is that Joe Biden just looks feeble. That the idea of somebody that old being in the White House is just, I don't know. I don't know. The economy was pretty good, I guess. Now, here's Trump's biggest weakness. You can't make Biden look competent. If Biden looks competent, and I don't mean that as in he does a decent job. I mean that like he gives off Captain America at the end of Avengers Endgame West Wing, genteel, grandpa, if he gives off that, that's a disaster for Trump. So his biggest weakness is going to be looking too erratic next to a very even-keeled Joe Biden. You gotta get him shaken up. If you don't get him shaken up, that's gonna be a problem for Donald Trump. 
Either way, though, this is a very interesting debate. In fact, it might be the most interesting debate of my entire life, mostly because there's no set strategy here. Both of these guys are very unorthodox if you look back at when they've done televised debates. Meanwhile, it, by all appearances, looks like this should be a slaughter. Donald Trump wood-chippered everybody on the Republican side. He then flustered Hillary Clinton to the point where she's still complaining about it in books and documentaries and podcasts and a graphic novel. Uh, I'm sure she's going to have a limited edition wax cylinder of Hillary because we've yet to hear enough from Hillary Clinton. But she still complains about that second debate. She still complains. This is going to be fascinating. And I'm excited to watch it with you guys. Twitch.tv slash Justin R. Young will be there Monday and Tuesday. Monday with uh, our final set of debate prep where we're going to watch Trump Clinton. And Tuesday, oh baby, it's fight night. They asked me, did I go deep in my bag? And I tell them, I sure did. If you would like to be a part of this program... You can do so. TheYoungAmerican at gmail.com is the email address, and many people used it over the last week. Andy writes, Why is it that states except two are winner-take-all on the Electoral College? It would seem that if electoral votes were divided up by percentage of votes received in that state, then that would fix a large portion of the problem with our popular vote and still enable the original intent of the system which if I remember correctly, has something to do with single states with large populations steamrolling multiple states with smaller populations. Or does this solution open up a can of worms all over the country? Or is it the change makes some people highly uncomfortable? I live in a highly divisive, or sorry, decisive swing state, Michigan, where most elections are uh, uh, pretty tight. I see the possibility of, of this resulting more and more campaigning and more voices in non-swing states as well, but again, maybe I'm naive. No, I, I think re the reason why it doesn't happen is because people fear change. You know, whenever you get into a situation where people want bold reforms, you never know where that is really going to land. And so the dirty secret about the Electoral College is that it's produced a fairly consistent ping-ponging back and forth between the two parties. I don't think that you're really going to see any kind of reform to our electoral system until you see one party in power for like, four terms, four or five terms or something like that. That happens, then I think we'd start talking about Anonymous Progressive writes, and this is something that I got a couple emails about between the free political newsletter at freepoliticalnewsletter.com and uh, about what I said on the PX3 Extra, which happened yesterday. This is about Breonna Taylor. I've been thinking a lot about the Breonna Taylor case and the non-indictment of two of the three cops involved, and I have thoughts to share. This is probably the safest place to do so. For background, I'm a progressive. I live in St. Louis, and I'm a lawyer, so I know a thing or two about how the law works. I'm 100% on board with the cause of BLM. However, I believe that the way the non-indictment of two of the three cops in Louisville is being talked about by both protesters and politicians is a dishonest attempt to score cheap political points and rile people up, rather than talking about what actually happened and why it shouldn't have. 
Here's my take that I'm too scared to post on Twitter for fear of getting dogpiled by a bunch of emotional fellow libs. The indictment and two non-indictments were correct, given the facts of the case that have been established and the law at the time. That does not mean that Breonna Taylor should have been killed. But the problem was largely with the law, not the two law enforcement officers who actually shot Miss Taylor. Intellectually, honest politicians and protesters should focus on the fact that the judge legally gave the cops a no-knock warrant on a residence where their suspect wasn't likely to be. The cops executed that warrant legally, were legally fired upon by a lawful gun owner, and legally returned fire resulting in a tragic death. Tragedy does not mean these cops should be made into martyrs. I wish the focus was on eliminating no-knock warrants rather than punishing these specific cops who are put in a bad situation by the existence of the warrant that they were asked to execute. That doesn't go for the cop that got charged. That dude acted like a fool and should go to jail. Police brutality is a real problem. But if you want to talk about cops murdering unarmed black people, use George Floyd or countless other examples where the facts are clean. When you start calling cops murderers because they return fire when fired upon while legally performing their job, according to the law at the time, not to say it's a good law, but it was the law, you are overreacting and it does the movement no favors because it makes everyone fighting against police brutality and systemic racism look like they're out for vengeance no matter the facts, and that doesn't help convince anyone that's not already. Justin also sent me a similar email with some of the facts that were laid out in the previous one, so I just put the end of his email here at the end. It's pretty insulting to hear people yelling as if cops are driving around looking for African Americans to gun down and high-five each other uh, and then go grab cold beers to celebrate. A truthful review of an, the actual police shooting stats would be helpful here. If it helps, I'm white, 40, and born and raised Democrat like any good dumb-dumb-my-vote-party lines when I vote. I sat out the last one because they were both awful. However, this time around, I may vote... Uh, and it will be for a person that I consider to be an awful human without a hair of leadership in his body. Why? Because the other side calls criminals brave, and that world is too much for me. Um, so I've spent a lot more time reviewing the Breonna Taylor stuff, and here's where I want to come down on it. I believe that there is a damage, perhaps irreparable, between the police and the community for which they serve, in some cases. And I think that this has historically been a problem. And I'm talking about decades and decades and decades, a lifetime, really, if you actually go by, I mean, multiple lifetimes. What I wish was happening now was that we were talking, to me, the, the pivot point should not be on the officers that pulled the trigger. Because I agree with the first emailer. The laws are the laws. And we can disagree with the laws, but the laws are, if you're looking to charge them, that's what, they're, that's what you're, you're looking to do. And if you're looking to overcharge, then you're asking for us to just delay and kick this can down the road when they get off. What I want is a conversation on the judge who signed it and the leadership that pushed for it. Ultimately, the man that those cops wanted was already in custody. 
the best thing that they could hope for in this case was to find a mid-level drug dealer stash, which by the way, they didn't. So when you're weighing the, the, the benefit versus the risk of executing a no-knock warrant in a red state at 2.30 in the morning, that seems to be a little reckless. And I think that, I've said before, cops, to me, get maximum respect and maximum accountability. But situations like this, situations that turn out to be an international embarrassment for the Louisville Police Department, to me, there needs to be discipline up the chain, and that discipline needs to be public. What I would have liked to have seen in a perfect world are for, A, reforms in that department to be announced simultaneously with some of this stuff, and B, for there to be discipline metered out. Because if we all hide behind our our positions, then this relationship gets no better. And that's why I do think that frustration boils over when, when it comes to issues like this. Relationships require trust, and I don't see a lot of it here. Average Joe writes, if you can't be bothered to educate yourself on how, when, and where to register to vote, then how are you going to vote informed? We already have a problem with uninformed voters. Uh, uh, do we really need to lower that bar any further? The only people that want to are evil crooks that rely on uh, the uninformed to push their empty-headed ideas like my expert. Well, average Joe... I always like to hear people's opinion on the guests that we have. I understand that specifically with conservative listeners, sometimes they're not quite as conservative as you'd like, and I look to continue to have a diversity of voices on. However, I don't believe that the expert was saying anything that was all too controversial. I think uh, our our expert on 18 to 25-year-old voting was just saying that, you know, there's a reason why they don't vote. Now, she's pushing for uh, the fact that it should be easier, but I don't know. You don't have to call her evil. Evil crook? And nobody who comes on my show should be an evil crook, in my opinion. Sean writes, On an episode I just finished listening to, you read a listener letter asking, uh, what do presidential campaigns do with their remaining money? You answered with the truthful answer that any candidate that's dropping out has blown through all their money, campaigns spend it usually as soon as they get it. However, there is an exception to this rule. Who had a campaign chest so overwhelmingly huge that even he couldn't spend it all? Mike Bloomberg. He had millions left after his pitiful Super Tuesday results. Hundreds of millions that he gave to his own campaign, which one can do so long as they are the candidate, But there is a rule that allows closed campaigns to send off their money to the party's national committee. So when Bloomberg shut things down, the DNC was the recipient of about $18 million of Bloomberg cash, an amount he couldn't have given to them directly as it would have exceeded the individual contribution limit of around $18 million. There's an exact figure here, but I'm not going to read it. A libertarian candidate for president who dropped out, Sean McCutcheon, don't ask, I'm a 28-year veteran of the Libertarian Party, and I don't recognize that name either, gave his own campaign money and has 50000 that he would like to transfer to the Libertarian National Committee in the same manner as Bloomberg, exceeding 
individual limitations by a little over 14,000. He is now suing to make sure that he could do it. That's interesting because that would theoretically open up a loophole where you could say you were running for president and then give over the legal limit. Hmm. This is like like, like the, the producers of uh, uh, circumventing campaign finance law. You know, in certain cases, a flop can be more profitable than a hit. Dorkmaster Flex writes, I appreciate how you always try to bring a balanced and objective approach to the discussion of political strategy. I do think that you're absolutely right that if you have the votes, you do it. Re-RBGC. However, I also think that it's disingenuous to say that everyone's a hypocrite and leave it at that. The Democratic position only exists because they want Republicans held to the same standard they suddenly invented in 2016. If the Republicans weren't being massive hypocrites to begin with, meaning had they voted on Garland in 2016, the Democrats wouldn't have anything to complain about. Yes, everybody is technically being hypocrites right now, but I think it deserves more detailed discussion. And in the matter of degrees, I don't see how anyone can claim that they're on the same level. Uh, I personally find fruitless the idea of deciding who the biggest hypocrite is, uh, specifically in terms of politicians. Your mileage may vary, and it usually relates to partisanship, so it's something where I stay out of it. In my opinion, this is in life, not just in politics. There's never a wrong time to do the right thing, so if the Democrats wanted the moral high ground, they could say, we are doing our best to establish norms again. And just like we wanted Merrick Garland voted on, we're going to vote on Amy Coney Barrett. If they wanted the moral high ground, they could have it right now. But they're not, and so they don't. And so everybody shows their ass. Connor, could rushing the Supreme Court nominee end up hurting Trump? By that I mean... If the side quest ends too soon, wouldn't that hasten the return to pandemic civil unrest conversations? Yes, and Connor, Donald Trump is running on promises made, promises kept. The, the problem with the idea of leaving it after the election, although it would certainly supercharge things, is that if you lose, you're also the guy who didn't try to flip that seat. Again, this is a story that has existed for longer than I've been alive. They've been fighting over the tilt of this court forever. And this pretty much represents the end of it. You can't be on the one yard line and, and then decide that you're going to run a trick play. You know, just ask Russell Wilson and the Seattle Seahawks from that Super Bowl. Eric from Wisconsin writes, I need your help understanding something. First, I work with a gay co-worker. He freely admits that he is a selfish bastard and only thinks about his bottom line in portfolio numbers. He's going to vote for Trump, even though in my opinion, Trump is not somebody that is particularly friendly to the LGBTQ community. He says he doesn't care because all he's really concerned about is himself and his stock numbers. He thinks Democrats are going to tank the market. So my general question is, how can somebody who's a minority, LGBTQ, or somebody else who's not an old, white, Anglo, and evangelical possibly vote for Trump? 
Is it a singular issue that drives them like my coworkers? Obviously, if you're passionate about right to life, you have to vote Republican. Do you think singular issues like this drive other minority Trump supporters? I'm a white, college-educated, white-collar worker. I've learned a hell of a lot since the BLM movement took off earlier this year. With all that I've learned, I can't see why anyone who's adversely affected by systemic racism, immigration prejudice, and adverse police practices would ever vote for Trump. Do these singular issues sometimes override the rest? Things like economy, abortion, or immigration. I mean, I am neither a minority or LGBTQ or a Trump voter. So I would probably not be the person to ask. What I would like to say here is that I think a conversation I would love to have as we exit this uh, election, presuming we're not knee deep in civil war, of course, is how much we gaslight ourselves. And I want to say gaslight because gaslight is more active than bubble or echo chamber. You know, we can have pleasant echo chambers. If you go into a cave under a waterfall, that's a magical moment. And indeed, it's an echo chamber. No one likes to be gaslit. So I think it is dangerous for Democrats to believe that only racist evangelicals vote for Trump. It just is a fundamental misunderstanding of your enemy. It is a fundamental misunderstanding of how you're going to beat him. It's a fundamental misunderstanding of the race and politics. To me, most people who vote Republican vote for lower taxes because that actually affects them. They don't, even the racists, the racists can be racist by themselves. Like, you know, there's plenty of racist stuff around where they can just rev up their racist engine. Taxes matter. And I think that a lot of that stuff kind of supersedes why we, we identify with our own identity politics stuff. I don't vote for a president to solve racism, but I do think that a president could take us to war. I do think that a president will make my taxes higher or lower. I do think that a president could have an effect on the economy. And ultimately, those are the issues that I think people wind up casting ballots for. Aside from single issue voters like, you know, abortion and pro-life and pro-choice. I think, like you know, factor all those in there. But that's my thought. Otherwise, I would just keep talking to your gay Trump friend. Cameron writes, Dear Santa Claus, I hope you're doing well this year and all the L's have been able to stay safe and socially distanced. I know I'm writing to you early, but my wish for Christmas may take some time and a little extra Christmas magic to happen. All I want this year is the election to be over by Christmas Day. I don't know what controversy will arise around mail votes, ballots, uh, or election day in general, how they're counted, if the county uh, brought back hanging chads, or how politicians will be able to find argument loopholes to force recounts and results they don't like. I don't want a miracle. I don't even care who wins anymore. Just after this whole year, the one thing I want is peace and quiet on Christmas Day. And lo, wouldn't we all rejoice, Cameron? Jim writes, 
I'm a 2016 Trump voter who is planning on voting third party in 2020. However, with the new development on the open Supreme Court seat, I am now feeling the pressure to flock back home to the GOP. I imagine a huge swath of Trump defectors are now reconsidering their options just like I am. Got me wondering, is the best strategy for Trump 2020 to rush the nominee through a Senate before January, or should they do the let's be fair card and wait for the next presidential uh, president to nominate? So far, it looks like Trump and McConnell are going to bum rush a nominee. Yikes. Um, again, uh, I, I, I think you got to try. You got to try. If you care that much about this, uh, the, the court that you're going to vote, then you care that they try. And right now, it looks like they got an open lane. So if somebody wound up, look, if, if Mitt Romney wanted to throw himself on the tracks, then they would say, okay, cool, let's kick it to the election. But you got to try. Otherwise, you're playing games with something that people have fought about their entire lives. Joey writes, remember when we were all when we all mocked and made fun of awkward and out of touch with reality Mitt Romney for not blowing out his birthday candles, which if you haven't seen this video, he takes out each candle individually, blows it out into the air, uh, and then like puts it in his hand so as not to blow directly on the cake. Remember how everyone, including you and yours truly, uh, uh, talked about how terrible that was? We all uh, look. I apologize to Mitt Romney. I apologize to Mitt Romney. Look, Mitt, I even highlighted your really good debate. I'm sorry, Mittens. I'm sorry. And finally, Phil brings us on home. After listening to the PX3 Extra last evening and your thoughts regarding the hullabaloo around Trump not accepting the results of the election, I felt the need to weigh in. This is coming from the standpoint of a political neophyte having spent most of my adult life not giving a rat's ass about politics. Here's what I see coming out of this. November 3rd comes and goes. There's no clear winner. Both sides are contesting the results. Sometime in the early morning of the 4th, Trump declares he's contesting the results in every count possible and that the Supreme Court will weigh in his favor and the GOP stand tall. Over the next three months, we see a, steadily, a steady progression of Chris Cuomo, Don Lemon, and Anderson Cooper's personal hygiene breaking down as they grow election results beards and refuse to leave their reporting desk long enough to change shirts. Hashtag CNN pit sweat becomes a trending hashtag. The hundreds, nay thousands of lawyers cashing in on this buy up every Olympic-sized swimming pool in the country and fill them with cash. Horrible deaths are reported as they attempt to dive Scrooge McDuck style into them and then realize that much Money acts as non-Newtonian fluid. The survivors then sue the Treasury Department for neglecting to place warning levels on currency. Trump signs an executive order giving OSHA oversight over the Treasury Department's initiative to, quote, make money safe again. On January 21st, the camera cuts to Nancy Pelosi as she rolls up to the White House in an APC and knocks on the front door to deliver a cyanide-laced apple pie. She's met at the door by Mitch McConnell wearing a pink bathrobe and wielding a double-barrel coach gun. She flings the pie at his face and attempts to run. She's wearing heels, which is a bitch to run in. Back in the APC while Mitch trails after her, also wearing heels. His pasty white and shockingly well-shaven legs flashing in and out from underneath the bathrobe. The scene ends with Nancy diving headlong into the back of the APC with Mitch unloading buckshot in the back door whilst Diego Luna, reprising his role as Cassie and Andor, pilots the APC away from the White House grounds. Uh,
the gauntlets laid down. That might be the best email we ever read on the show. TheYoungAmerican at gmail.com. Thank you to everybody who's realized that the best deal in politics is getting on the $3 level of PX3 up until election day. From now until then, it's only $15. So many of you have already joined up that we're close to another milestone. 1,100 patrons. 1,100 patrons is now within reach. We only need 21 more. So if you want to get on the team, $15 until election day gets you four episodes each and every week, plus bonus and emergency episodes, just in case we're not doing a show or have already done the show for the day. We're going to make sure that we bring you everything that you need. I'm going to make it worth your while. 15 bucks between now and election day. Head on over to take politicsseriously.com. Our guest today is Gregory Koger. He's a professor of political science at the University of Miami, the U. You can check out his book, Filibustering, A Political History of Obstruction in the House and in the Senate, as well as a book he co-authored with Matthew Lebo entitled Strategic Party Government, which is about the partisan contest for power in the U.S. Congress. We're talking all about the filibuster. Welcome to the show, Gregory. Thank you, and thank you for having me. All right, we're going to talk about something that that I think is going to be a hot topic, not only now, but but also going forward, and that is the filibuster, something that is often spoken about, sometimes used, uh, uh, as, as become semi-famous uh, now in our social media age when, when the coverage of such things are now a little bit more expansive. But let me get it from the horse's mouth here. What is a filibuster for people who have no idea what it exactly is? Okay, I have to start with the, the, the most general definition, which is it is strategic delay in a parliamentary setting. So anytime you're in a meeting and someone tries to drag it out because they think they're going to win or they're going to that you'll give up something in order to just end the conversation, that's filibustering. So it can happen in any sort of legislature. It happens in state legislatures around the country, uh, and has happened in both chambers of the U.S. Congress. Uh, what we mean in um, specifically in Congress is that uh, legislators have used a few different ways to filibuster. Uh, the most well-known historically is uh, speaking, right? Somebody can get to the floor of the Senate and just speak about whatever they want to for as long as they want to because there's no time limit. But there are other ways to filibuster. Uh, one is to call for unnecessary procedural roll call votes because you could, those are actually the highest, the, the highest priority votes in the U.S. Congress, right? Because like the vote to, to adjourn for the day and go home is more important than a vote to finish up a bill. So in, historically, people have delayed uh, like legislative decisions by just motion to go home or motion to take a recess. And uh, the last thing is uh, disappearing quorums have been used uh, in a lot of legislatures. And that is when legislators literally just duck out or, or they're <laughs> even there, but they refuse to vote. Because if there aren't enough people who are participating, uh, then a legislature can't make a legitimate decision. Okay. If you watch C-SPAN 2, which I, I do sometimes, 
Yeah. Uh, he, won't, he won't see any of this going on on the Senate floor. Yeah. Uh, and this is what my book uh, gets into. It so sort of explains how we got from the historic methods of these like brilliant floor fights to this like kabuki theater of, um, you know, senators threatening to filibuster, but never actually having to do it on the floor of the Senate. And that so that transformation comes around the 1960s and, and accelerates afterwards, where starting at that point, if a senator threatened to filibuster or expressed an interest in filibustering, then what the Senate would do is, is take that threat seriously, uh, automatically, uh, and either start to bargain with the senator or give in, um, or hold a cloture vote to try to shut off the debate that hasn't really started. Uh, and when, so you flash forward to today, you never see anybody actually filibustering on the Senate floor unless they're just trying to do it for fun to get attention. Um, and what you see instead is the expectation that anything that can be filibustered probably will be filibustered. Uh, and so the majority party then has to figure out how to get around uh, the fact that they need 60 votes to pass their agenda. All right, so so let's kind of go back historically and and understand where this has been used. Uh, I actually have a new uh, history series coming out that talks about the 1964 election, and amongst that is the Civil Rights Bill by Lyndon Baines Johnson, which is filibustered for days and days and days. Uh, uh, often, you know, uh, uh, you know. I think it was like 27 hours by Robert Byrd or something like that. Just like personally, uh, is that the beginning of the end? You, you mentioned that it, it develops through the sixties. Is that like one of the more famous filibusters or are there other examples that we can point to in history to understand where this has been used? So, right. In the mid 20th century, there were a string of filibusters against civil rights bills. Uh, so the longest, single-person filibuster in Senate, U.S. Senate history is uh, um, a 24-hour filibuster in, um, by Strom Thurmond in 1957 against the 1957 Civil Rights Act. Mm -hmm. um, the longest filibuster in terms of like the total amount of time sure. was, as you say, the 1964 Civil Rights Act. That went on for weeks and weeks and weeks. Uh, it's the longest filibuster. And it also, like in, in my... Uh, in my book, the data set I amassed, it was the most discussed filibuster in, in Senate history, right? So there's lots and lots of media coverage of what's going on. Um, and it, okay, so, but my book actually goes back to 1789. It goes back to nice. the first Congress. Let's do it. it. traces filibustering. And, and to be clear, there are, you know, previous civil rights related filibusters. So uh, just to pluck one out of the air, in 1850, there were filibusters in both chambers uh, against bringing California in as a free state. Um, wow. And that, that, like, that fight then led to the Compromise of 1850. But what my book also shows is that from the beginning, it's also it, the filibustering has been done on a wide range of issues. So the very first things that turn up in my data are filibusters related to trade uh, before the War of 1812. In the House of Representatives, so they're fighting over, you know, what to do about the Fran the fact that, you know, they want to trade with France and with England, and and you know, both of those countries are, are sh sinking our ships for the for, for that reason. So, 
fights over trade. There's been fights over monetary policy. Sometimes they're just fighting because the other party is trying to stick it to them, and yeah. they're, they're, it's their way of sticking up for the rights. Um, so there's been there's been filibusters on a wide range of issues, civil rights uh, being one of them. Um, but back when it took time, when it, when it act, legislators had to actually like do it on the floor, they had to, to get public attention, they had to invest their own time and effort, and sometimes they you know, fall to the floor exhausted. They would only wage that kind of fight on things they cared about and so intensely. And so, you know, the record of, of what filibusters happened in the past is a record of what legislators really cared about over time. And that includes civil rights, uh, but includes a wide range of you know, economic and political issues as well. So let's talk about the strategic benefit of a filibuster. In in 64, the Southern Democrats that are filibustering the, the bill are doing it because they believe the longer that the nation sits with the bill, the more the nation will turn against it and the more the nation will start to talk to senators that are either on the fence or or supporting it and that will peel back support. Obviously, that doesn't happen, but... Aside from just delaying it to wake up more of America to a larger issue, what are the strategies? So you filibuster. Okay, let's do history and then we'll do modern. Sure. Yeah. Filibustering. Yeah. Historically, yeah, you'd filibuster because uh, you want to drag it out and you thought that by dragging out the debate, either the, the other side will give in. Uh, they'll either, you know, they'll kill whatever bill they're bringing up. They'll uh, allow, they'll modify it. Um, sometimes senators were house members as well. were filibustering because they wanted to bring something else onto the agenda entirely. Uh, so actually one of the, for the ways a civil rights bill came to the floor in 1935 was because a Northern Senator took to the floor and said, all right, I'm not going to let you guys adjourn for the year unless you agree to bring up a civil rights bill. Uh, and, and so it was like, it was a, it was an agenda setting filibuster. He took hostage the thing that other people wanted and said, you can't have this thing unless you give me what I want, which is a vote on an anti-lynching bill. Okay. Um, so about the 1964 civil rights act, of course, this is like the, the, you know, the latest in a string of filibusters from the perspective of the Southern senators. And um, I would recommend to your to your listeners uh, the 19, the 2002 book Master of the Senate by Robert Caro, which is just this exhaustive but excellent, brilliant story of the 1957 Civil Rights Act. Um, and part of that is that the the Southerners don't actually filibuster as as I describe it. It's like going to the floor, but everybody knew that they could and that they would. And yeah. So the the the, the challenge for, for Lyndon Johnson and the, the civil rights advocates is let's find a version of this bill that they won't filibuster. And so there's like very delicate bargaining. And, um, and also at that and point, this, LBJ has to, with his eyes on 1960, figure out a way that he can survive, you know, either uh, supporting this bill and losing his entire base in the South or not supporting this bill and being a persona non grata in the North with his Democratic Party that is splintered. Precisely. There's another bill that passes in 1960 that roughly the same thing plays out, except in 1960, the Southern senators do actually take the floor and they are especially well organized in their filibuster. They, they, they take turns, they rotate, they're asking each other questions on the floor, which 
is a great way to drag out debate without using up their their uh, access to the floor. And the the rest of the senators, these supposedly pro civil rights senators, they get exhausted really quickly and they they stop showing up uh, on the floor of the Senate. And the the civil rights advocates end up just conceding to the Southerners and saying, "All right, what is?" I need to pass something. What is the smallest possible thing to allow? And that was their experience in previous cycles of this fight. So by 1964, what's different is that the civil rights advocates um, are extremely well organized rather than the sort of vague mob that, that had you know, been trying to push civil rights legislation. But they're, they're organized. They have their own newsletters. They have their own meetings. And they have agreed that they're not going to give in to the Southerners. They are going to put the bill on the floor and just let them filibuster it day in and day out, but not uncontested. So they will also put civil rights advocates on the floor of the Senate and fight back and argue back when Southerners say things that just aren't true. Uh, and, and so it's more of a fight for public opinion than an attempt to exhaust the Southerners, which is, had been the previous uh, response to a filibuster. Um, and that's why it goes on so long. They're waiting for the Southerners to crack or for the, the so-called moderates to finally come around and say, all right, you guys have done, you've dragged this out for weeks. Yeah. I can see that neither side is going to give in. And so the way to get out of this mess is to finally impose a cloture vote uh, on a civil rights bill. Which, that's, which, that's which they, they always know. LBJ always knows that's that's the the path that they're going to have to take is is cloture because he knows that he knows the Southern Democrats better than anybody. That is always the expectation. It's just a question of how you get there. Yeah, yeah. All right, so let's let's go to the modern idea of of our our filibuster because that is what uh, you know certainly is at uh, you know the, the the tip of people's tongues today. Even as we are uh, looks like less than a day away from uh, finding out who the nominee for our uh, supreme our, our now open Supreme Court seat is. Uh, what is the modern idea of the filibuster, and let's try to tie it into uh, where we are now with our our simple majority right. judges. I'm going to give you two definitions of modern, right? So when I first started studying this in grad school in the late 1990s, there's definitely like well-organized parties. There, there's a lot of partisanship in Congress. And so what filibustering meant in that context was the minority party would often block legislation proposed by the majority party. And what they wanted was some sort of concession, right? So you know, I want to have, you, can, you can't have the whole loaf, but you can have half a loaf because we don't want to block legislation that actually is fairly popular. Um, or a lot of times what they were bargaining for was just a full chance to debate bills on the floor of the Senate to bring up amendments. Sometimes it's to bring up other issues, as I mentioned, right? So this is how campaign finance reform gets debated on the floor of the Senate in the late 1990s, which yeah. eventually became the McCain-Feingold bill. Well, they, it came to the floor because Democrats would say, all right, you can't vote on your thing unless we also have a vote on campaign finance. And, um, and you know, when I started seeing what filibustering actually meant in the Senate, I, I started to appreciate it, right? So it means some moderation on the legislation that might be really partisan and not really well-written. It means a, a far more open floor debate, uh, but it also means fairly large majorities passing what actually does pass in the end, right? So you get laws that, are, that are, have some pop, bipartisan buy-in and, and they're much more stable. Okay, fast forward to uh, the last 12 years. 
when the Democrats started trying to legislate in the early years of the Obama presidency, what they found was the Republicans were filibustering not so much because they wanted to moderate the legislation or because they wanted a full and open floor debate, uh, because they just didn't want Democrats to pass anything. So it's it's a different calculus. It's it's not it's the more you succeed at passing laws that make uh, you know the American public happier, the worse off we are as a minority party. Yeah. So why wouldn't we just block everything? Uh, and that that's that was a. It wasn't a brand new logic, piece of logic, but it was it was applied more consistently across the Democratic agenda than had been uh, in the past. And that is, you know, it was a huge step in the unraveling of the Senate. Uh, so um, Democrats got very frustrated. They did pass some landmark bills, including, of course, the ACA. But, yep. I mean, their agenda could have been much more fruitful if they didn't have to face filibusters against everything. Um, after that, uh, you know, we had divided government once the, the Republicans took the House. And so a lot of the haggling that happens uh, since then is about what does it mean to have a full and open floor debate uh, with the minority party often pushing for amendments on, extreme, on, on non-germane issues, on other issues. Uh, and the minority part, majority party saying, we don't want to vote on your thing at all. Uh, because that would be awkward for our uh, members coming up in, in difficult elections. So we're just not going to vote on anything. Uh, so over the, you know, during the Trump presidency, the Republicans in the first two years, they focused on, on pieces of legislation that could not be filibustered. Uh, right. So the repealing the ACA, passing the tax cut, those both come up under a special budget procedures that can't be filibustered. They used other special procedures to overturn regulations, uh, which could not be filibustered. And otherwise, they haven't legislated. I mean, it's, it has been stunning to me to watch the Republican majority in, in the Senate in the last two years. They just they have not brought up any legislation that can be filibustered that, that is at all controversial. Um, they'll, they'll do the bare minimum to keep the, the doors to, to you know, do the budget legislation they have to do to keep the doors open. But otherwise, I mean, there is no Republican agenda. They didn't have a – as a party, they didn't have a platform. And as a majority party in the Senate, they have not come up with legislation that they have well, – you're, you're saying, you're saying in, in, this, in, this, in, this RNC, in this RNC, they didn't have a platform, right? Because they, they had a platform in 2016 that – Right, yeah, right, yeah, right. But I'm just, saying that yeah. in the 2020 – yeah. as a party, exactly, 2020, yeah. they didn't have a Which, platform. Yeah, I mean, part, part, part of that, part of that was uh, like the COVID – of, of it all, although the Democrats certainly got it done. You can have virtual, I mean, you can have Zoom meetings and, and come up with a platform that way. <laughs> um, but as a party in the Senate, they, they haven't come up with an agenda. No. Part of that is um, to have an agenda. Well, first, they'd have to agree amongst themselves, which I think is problematic. Yes. Um, but they'd also have to put it on the floor and, um, you know, let people vote on it. And, um perhaps even have some sort of open debate about their agenda on the floor. And that is unacceptable because then Democrats could offer their own amendments and, and, you know, pick these things apart. Let's get so. to the, let's get to the judges because while uh, there has not been a lot that couldn't be filibustered in terms of uh, legislation, certainly Mitch McConnell has kept his Senate busy confirming judges. And we are about to enter into a gigantic 
conversation about that again with possibly the most consequential judge appointment of my lifetime, and that is the, the seat of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. To hear Mitch McConnell say it, this is the Democrats' uh, 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 removal of the filibuster uh, uh, revisited upon them, that, that, he, that, that there is that old clip of him saying that this decision by Harry Reid and his leadership of the Senate during the, during the Obama administration would eventually come back to haunt them, and this indeed is that specter in full bloom. Is that the case from your perspective? Uh, let me step back just a little bit. Um, I mean, there, there used to be an old set of norms about how judicial nominations worked. And it was that uh, because the courts rely upon their credibility for anybody to follow their decisions, the president would just try to nominate qualified people and the Senate would nominate, would approve of judges who were qualified. Uh, and they tried to minimize the role of partisanship. This begins to unravel in the 1980s when you know President Reagan starts to appoint, uh, nominate you know fairly conservative judges, trying to like skew the judiciary one one direction. Uh, it escalates, yes, over time. So by 2003, uh, the Democrats began to filibuster judges for the first time for the first time in decades on the floor of the Senate. Um, and Republicans get very angry about this. This leads to uh, almost a nuclear option that is a, a simple majority, a majority party imposing simple majority cloture on the floor of the Senate in 2005, uh, but they bargain their way out of that. Uh, and yeah, then it comes back to a head uh, during the Obama presidency. Uh, Republicans are consistently filibustering uh, Obama's nominees. And by 2013, the Democrats had had enough said like we you know we have qualified judges uh we have qualified executive nominations as well and you are just filibustering them because uh you don't like having democrats on the bench uh and that is when the, yes the democrats go go ahead and they reduce the the threshold for cloture by some majority let me mention process here yeah. so the senate has rules uh and it takes a simple majority to change the rules of the Senate, but it takes a two-thirds majority to invoke cloture on a rules change. So it's actually a higher than usual threshold uh, to shut off debate on a rules change. Uh, and so that's not what the Democrats did. They took the existing rule that was in place, which says it takes a three-fifths majority to uh, invoke cloture, and said, um, we have a special math that applies to these nominations, where a Three-fifths actually means simple majority. Uh, and so <laughs> going forward, <laughs> the cloture threshold, notwithstanding what the rule says, the cloture threshold for all executive nominations and for all judicial nominations except the Supreme Court will be simple majority. Wow. I mean, yeah, I mean. I didn't even realize that. So this, so, so they literally just rewrote the definition of the rule instead of changing the rule? That's right. That's right. That's fascinating. And, you know, and because we talk about like, you know, these are rules and then there are precedents, you know, precedents about how the rules are interpreted. It sounds very legal, but I have to stress, like, this is a decision for the legislature itself. So it takes a simple majority to decide what the rules mean. And there's no, uh, they're almost impossible to appeal these to any sort of ex external authority. So it's not reviewable by the courts, for example. All right. So, 
yeah, the Democrats, by a simple majority vote, decided that three-fifths of the Senate really meant a simple majority of the Senate for all nominations except the Supreme Court. So in 2017, when the Democrats wanted to filibuster the Gorsuch nomination uh, to the Supreme Court, the Republicans said, well, <laughs> there is no reason to exempt Supreme Court nominations when you when you impose your president in 2013, and we're not going to let you defeat us now. So, um, no. Yeah. And they extended the 2013 precedent to 2017. So in that sense, there is some fairness to what Mitch McConnell is saying. Like, he's just, that was just the Democrats' decision 2013 being extended. Uh, and there wasn't much the Democrats could say to complain. Was that, um, was that, was that a mistake by Harry Reid? Mm, to start, to start the, the, this, this ball rolling, or is this a ball that has been rolling and, and it's hard to say who pushed that first snowflake down the mountain? I mean, that's why I started back in the good old days, because it is, it's, this has been an ongoing conflict over the composition of the judiciary. And so it's, it's hard to pick one point in time and say, that's when, you know, that's when we went from bad to good, from, from good to bad. Right? Yeah. And so the 2000 precedent was just part of a long conversation over the escalating conflict over the judiciary. Uh, because again, from the Democrats point of view, these are perfectly qualified nominations that are being blocked for strictly partisan reasons, and they shouldn't allow that. Um, and, and then from their point of view, the Democrats felt like, you know, the Republicans had promised not to do this, and they had broken their promises. And so the only way to um, restore normal to the Senate is to uh, go through this precedent process. Now, um, I mean, to, to get to the present day, there's a different set of precedents we should be talking about, which is a more informal about how to treat Supreme Court nominations uh, from the president. Um, one example to bring up very briefly is uh, in 1968, uh, Lyndon Johnson had uh, uh, was approached by Earl Warren, who said, look, I'm thinking about retiring. If you can replace me on the Supreme Court, you go ahead and do it, and I'll, and, I'll, and I'll drop out. Otherwise, I'll wait until uh, 1969. So Lyndon Johnson goes ahead, and he makes a nomination of his good friend and former staffer, Abe Fortas, who's already an associate justice, and says, I want to promote this guy and, and put a new guy on the court after him. The Fortas nomination is the only nomination in the history of the Senate to be blocked, the only Supreme Court nomination in the history of the Senate be blocked by a filibuster. Uh, he does get filibustered by a combination of conservative Democrats and Republicans. Um, now, that was a nomination made fairly late in an election year. This is like he makes it in, I want to say, May or June of 1968. Uh, how young we were when May and June was, know, right? was late in the game. Now, Flash forward to, uh, you know, George H.W. Bush, so 1989 mm -hmm. to 1992. Bush makes two nominations to the Supreme Court, as you know, and um, the Democrats are in the majority in the Senate, but they go ahead and they process these nominations. They, you know, hold hearings, they put the nominations on the floor of the Senate, and they both get votes uh, without a filibuster. So Clarence Thomas actually gets put on the, co the court by a 52 to 48 vote. 
it could have been filibustered if all those 48 people said no, filibustered. Uh, but uh, no, he came up for a straight up or down vote. Now, since that time, every single person to get approved to the Supreme Court has been approved when the president's party is the same as the majority party of the Senate, uh, which I think is unstable. I mean, it, it ought to be the case that every Supreme Court nomination gets a floor vote and people can say yes or no, in my, in my view. But that has not been the pattern of the Senate. So part, part of that part of that is also the the whatever strategic or lack of strategy of, of the retirement pattern for the judges. Right. Because it seems like that oh. is in their minds very much as as well that, you know, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, by all accounts, I mean, certainly there were voices back in the uh, the Obama administration that wanted her to retire. But considering where we now know the story ended, I'm sure she would have loved you know, uh, uh, a few years uh, away from the bench uh, before the end of her life, but she does not do it largely because there is a Republican in the White House and the Republicans control the Senate. That is correct. I mean, I, I think she loved being a member of the court. She felt like she was doing extraordinary work, even into her 80s. And sure, I mean, I could I could retire now and let President Obama appoint my successor, she thinks. Or I can let President Clinton nominate my successor in 2017. Um, well, we all know how that, how that ended. Yeah, not, um, you know, yeah, the quickest way to then, make God I mean, laugh is to announce your plans out loud. Yeah, but even then, I mean, it was, it was her expectation that, you know, that President Hillary Clinton would make a nomination and the Republican majority of the Senate in 2017, which, which was probably going to be the outcome anyway, yeah. that that Republican majority would have brought up uh, the nomination of her successor, which, you know, these days it's, it's, it's not clear at all that would have happened. Um, so yes, obviously the, um, in 20, 2016, uh, the Republican majority doesn't bring up uh, Merrick Garland's, the nomination of uh, Obama, President Obama for Merrick Garland and um, they hold that seat open until 2017. What he said at the time uh, was Mitch McConnell said, we need to hold this seat open to, because it's too close to an election. Yeah. Even though the nomination is being made in March and we need to let the American people weigh in on this and let the next president, the president who gets elected in 2016, uh, fill this seat. Uh, and so he does, he does, he does highlight the, the, the like mismatch of the white house and, and the Senate, even, even in the moment. Even, uh, but yeah, but at the time, the emphasis was on, you know, bringing the, the popular vote into the, the occasion, right? It's, it's sure. not so much Oh, no, 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 yeah. I mean, look, yeah, yeah. He, he, is, he is saying it's too close to the election, but, you know, I was re-watching a lot of those old clips recently, and, and you know, the, I think it was Warren G. Harding was the last time that during an election year in mismatched parties that a, a, a seat was filled or whatever. So you're, like, that, that was his... Rationale: If we are to get into the strategery of cocaine, Mitch. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, but so there's no rule here, uh, but there is there are norms, and uh, you know, the, the, to not bring the nomination up for a vote in 2016 by articulating the fact that it's about proximity to the election, and then bring up the nomination in 2020, even if it's made in. Uh, you know, late September. 
If not in Mitch's case, it certainly is a contradiction for a lot of the Republican senators who left out the nuance and strictly <laughs> focused on proximity to the election. Yes, like like, said, like like like. And Lindsey if I Graham. do this in twenty twenty, by all means, <laughs> throw my words in my face and vote against me. And here they are. Yeah. So no, Lindsay, there, Lindsay there no definitely, rules. Lindsay definitely had that boomerang hit him right between the eyes uh, with with that particular piece of bluster. Yeah. So there aren't rules constraining, there are norms, and the norms are being violated. Um, and Democrats don't have a lot of options because the ability to filibuster Supreme Court nominations uh, has been taken away. All right. Uh, one last question, and uh, uh, I'll get you out of here. You mentioned the idea that what is going away is the idea of a Supreme Court nominee being brought to a mismatch between the White House and the Senate. I had an emailer hit me up this week that said, why would any uh, opposing party Senate, even if a, a seat came up immediately after a president was inaugurated, why would they even bring it to the floor if this is where we're at now? Do you think that that is a reality? I think it is. I mean, it's, especially after the, the reversal from 2016 to 2020. I mean, the, so the the, the, the website 538 has uh, odds of different outcomes. And one of the, the very low probability outcomes is a Democratic Senate and President Trump staying in office. Yeah. Um, but let's play that out just for fun. Sure. Even though it's like a 1% chance. In that situation, if, you know, President Trump then wants to make a nomination to fill the seat of Clarence Thomas, would the Democratic majority in the Senate bring up that nomination for a vote? I would imagine there'd be pretty loud voices within the Democratic Party saying, uh, you know, oh, hell no, uh, because, I mean, with, the norms are out the window and there's no reason for us to keep playing by a game that nobody else is playing. Yeah, I mean, to your point uh, earlier about, you know, the reason why we filibustered to begin with is is at some uh, times to alert the nation and make the nation stew with it and then make the constituents affect the Senate. The only thing that I would wonder is, can anybody go four years? Can anybody go two years or even one, you know, I guess one and a half years of, of holding something like that up when there's not, you know, part of even the Merrick Garland thing is there were Republican primaries, you know, that were being contested. There were debates. It felt like, now granted, we have a very extended election season in our modern era, but it felt like a time for choosing. Uh, whereas now, uh, uh, you know, if if this happens pre-midterms, I, I don't know. That would be a long time to hold it. So as the Democrats are saying now, there's nothing magic about having nine justices on the Supreme Court. I mean, in the context now, they're talking about expanding the number of, of justices in a hypothetical Democratic majority in 2021 yeah. to, let's say, 13. Um, but it can go the opposite direction. So in, in 19, 1865, after Abraham Lincoln was assassinated and Andrew Johnson became president, the Republican majorities in the House and Senate quickly realized that, that, they were on, that he was on a different page when it came to Reconstruction policy, and they didn't want him making any more Supreme Court nominations. And so at that point, they actually reduced the number of justices, according to law, uh, on the Supreme Court. 
So and uh, not firing anybody who was on the court at the time, but just saying, look, you know, we're reducing the number from nine to seven so that even if somebody dies or retires, Andrew Johnson doesn't get to fill those seats unless we're actually getting down to the seventh seat on the Supreme Court. Uh, and if I were, so if I was the, the PR person for a hypothetical Democratic majority in 2021 with a hypothetical President Trump, uh, I just as a matter of PR, I put a bill on the floor that says, all right, well, we'll just reduce the number of Supreme Court justices, justices from, from nine to seven uh, and then magically have that snap back to nine in 2025. <laughs> um, so <laughs> we're not... We're not not filling the seat. We're just taking away the seat altogether. I would now that I would be in favor of if just to see the most high stakes game of musical chairs ever devised in American history. Yeah. Uh, I'll tell you what. I, uh, I I thank you, thank you, thank you so much, and I'm sure the audience does for all this knowledge on what is a very arcane but influential part of our governance. Uh, Gregory Coger is a professor of political science at the U, the University of Miami. You can check out his book, Filibustering, A Political History of Obstruction in the House and Senate, as well as the book he co-authored with Matthew Lebo titled Strategic Party Government, about the partisan contest for power in the U.S. Congress. Gregory, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And that wraps it up for us today. Thank you very much for joining today, this week, this election season, this year, forever. I love you. I love you. What am I going to say? I just love you. Let's go ahead and read the Titanic $10 tier. Lord Generic Frenchman, Dr. G, Jacob Wilson, D-Laser, Dallas Danger Teller, your boy Craig, Zombie Doc, Gazer Beam, Utah, Jimmy Montana, Captain Bunzo, Cujo, Tally, Richard, Memory Pie App, Crookie McCrookface, Justin Ryan Egan, and Ribs Tibbs McGillicuddy. Vote for Trump 2020, Martin, Government Unfiltered, Neil, Archie, Darren, Daily Tech News Show, Jay Milius, Olin and Angela, DL, Stephen, Chad, Miranda, Jenny, Robert, the most conscientious nonpartisan listeners, Glenn Wolf, Brand, Chili Scoop, Dustin, Just Another Pilot, Mike McLaughlin, that's middle-aged Mike, Scale, The Gen, MacBook Pro, Leon Frozen, Summers, Jay Pink, and Andrew. You want to join their ranks? You head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com, where for only $15, you will get four podcasts a week until Election Day. That's it. That's how much it costs if you're at the $3 level until Election Day. Just 15 bucks. Think of all the dumb stuff you've spent $15 on especially during this quarantine. That's like a Postmate delivery fee. Come on. You want to email the show, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Follow me on social media at Justin R. Young. Get my free political newsletter at freepoliticalnewsletter.com. And make sure you not only watch us debate prep on Monday, twitch.tv slash Justin R. Young, Clinton Trump 2. And then, on Tuesday, it's live, Fight Night, Biden, Trump. Come on, twitch.tv slash Justin R. Young. Even if you have no idea what Twitch is, just go there. Go to that site right now, just hit follow. And if you get the app and you follow me there, it'll alert you when I go live via 
a push notification. All right. Till next time, this is your old boy, Justin Robert Young, saying some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more talk about politics. But this is the only program that talks about, oh, still going in many ways it's going better john f kennedy was about to do what he does best run for president and win a second term until an assassin's bullet killed the sitting president opening the biggest political power vacuum in modern history and everyone wants a piece of the action my name is Justin Robert Young, and in the new season of my political history podcast, Raise the Dead, we tell the epic tale of 1964. Race riots, vile television ads, a secret Senate sex den, and the most famous legislation to come out of Congress in a generation. Moments that have molded and shaped our modern political world. News dies and becomes history. But tonight... We raise the dead. Vicious, mean, uh, dirty, low-down stuff about uh, all this. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>